It was at Christmas five years ago that I had the strange experience of hearing myself on the radio all day long on Boxing Day as Radio 4 broadcast the recording of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It has been a privilege to be the voice of J.K. Rowling's work over six books, 2,764 pages and 100 hours and 55 minutes of recordings. The characters are familiar friends and enemies for me, but like millions of others, I eagerly await each new instalment. I first met Jo nearly seven years ago when she came to the studio where I was recording the first book. She remains famously reticent, and like millions of Potter fans, I'm fascinated to know what it's like to live with Harry, where the inspiration for the books comes from, what she thinks of her critics, and what she will do when she finishes the final chapter. So when Jo agreed to record a conversation with me, I jumped at the chance. Uh, jo, I suppose a good question to open with would be simply which character you find yourself identifying with most when you're writing or when you're reading what you've just written. Probably Harry, really, because I have to think myself into his head far more than any of the others because everything is seen from his point of view. But there's a little bit of me in, in most of the characters, I think. They, they say of writers that um, I think it's impossible not to put a little bit of yourself into any character because you have to imagine their motivation. Did it occur to you when you were planning the books, hoping the first one would be published, that so many people who have never been inside a boarding school would relate to the very particular world of an English boarding school which Hogwarts represents? Well, the truth is I've never been inside one either. Of course, I was comprehensive educated. But it was essential for the plot that the children could be enclosed somewhere together overnight. This could not be a day school because the adventure would fall down every, every second day if they, if they went home and spoke to their parents and, and then had to break back into school every, every, every week to uh, wander around at night. So it had to be a boarding school, which was also logical because where would wizards educate their children? This is a place where there are going to be lots of noises, smells, flashing lights, and you would want to contain it somewhere fairly distant so that muggles didn't come across it all the time. But... I think that people recognise the reality of a lot of children being cloistered together, perhaps, more than they recognise the ambience of a boarding school. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with that, but I think I am familiar with what children are like when they're together. The thing is, you have created a world. It's the sort of definition of successful fiction, is to, to have a world that somehow is circumscribed by its own rules, its own ethics, its own cultural flavour and smell and senses. And you've done this, and that's why... It's very common to hear about children and adults dreaming that they're in Hogwarts, dreaming that they are um, side by side with Harry and Ron and Hermione and so on. And naturally what comes as a result of this too is you get strange warning voices from people I always imagine with um, steel-coloured hair with a knitting needle stuck through it in a bun at the back, arguing that somehow this is dangerous for yes. uh, people, um, aside from the whole business of whether or not magic is dangerous for people, which I think we can ignore because it seems to come from <laughs> such wild children. Of it's all part of that. Young, young ladies 200 years ago weren't allowed to read novels because it would inflame them and excite them and make them long for things that weren't real. And I, I remember being very distressed to read when I was quite young about Virginia Woolf being told she mustn't write because it, it would exacerbate her mental condition. We need a place to escape to, whether as a writer or a reader. And 
obviously the world that I've created is a particularly shining example of a world to which it's very pleasant to escape. That beautiful image in C.S. Lewis where there are the pools, the world between worlds, and you can jump into the different pools to access the different worlds. And that, for me, was always a metaphor for a library. I know Lewis wasn't actually thinking of no, that when he wrote it. Metaphor for of him. course. Yeah. But to me, that was to jump into these different pools, to enter different worlds. What, what, a, what a beautiful place. And that for, that, for me, is what literature should be. So whether you love Hogwarts or loathe it, I don't think you can criticise it for, for being a world that no, people enjoy. Precisely. I mean, that is, that is why it, it exercises such a keen hold on all our imaginations. Those, uh, I read an interview with you in which I was very flattered to see that you, you drew a parallel between that world and the world of Sherlock Holmes. And mm. I found that a very flattering comparison that also resonated with me because when I read the Holmes stories, it is, of course... It's a world that never really existed, and yet you can wholeheartedly believe it, it existed, and more importantly, you want it to have existed, don't you? Exactly so that's, right. That's why it's such fabulously entertaining reading. Yeah, and why Sherlock Holmes to this day still gets letters to Absolutely, 221B yeah. Baker Street. And of course, it is a peculiarity that you will be accused both of creating a world in which children can luxuriate in an escapist fantasy and for creating a world that is frightening mm. because it's so full of wickedness and uh, danger and mm. that it could upset them. Uh, now, they can't, both, <laughs> they can't both be true. But I do think it is one of the advances in children's literature that, uh, that you've made with this uh, remarkable series is that you have not held back from the difficult and the frightening and the, the treacherous and the unjust and all the things that most exercise children's minds. Well, I feel very strongly that there is a move to sanitise literature because we're trying to protect children, not from necessarily from the grisly facts of life, but from their own imaginations. I remember being in America a few years ago and Halloween was approaching and three television programmes in a row we're talking about how to explain to children it wasn't real. Now, there's a reason why we create these stories, and we have always created these stories, and the reason why we have had these pagan festivals, and a reason why even the church allows a certain amount of fear. We need to feel fear, and we need to confront that in a controlled environment. That's a very important part of growing up, I think. And the child that has been protected from dementors in fiction, I would argue, is much more likely to fall prey to them later in life reality and also what are we saying to children who do have scary and disturbing thoughts we're saying that's wrong and that's that, that's not natural and it's not something that's intrinsic to the human condition that they're in some way odd or ill exactly <laughs> it's a very it dangerous them, thing to tell a child and guilt is the greatest trigger for aggression that man has Absolutely. and if, if people grow up thinking they're peculiar for having dark thoughts or for being aware of the weirder side of the world and their lives, then that's going to make them awful human beings, isn't it? I totally agree. And one of the jobs of writing, in a sense, is to show you that you're not alone. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And certainly I discovered I wasn't alone through books, I think, arguably more than I did through friendships in my early days, because I was quite an introverted child. And it was through yes. reading that I realised I wasn't alone in all sorts of levels. Absolutely. And it's a central anxiety, if you like, that the reader is always confronting with Harry is that there is this extraordinary closeness he has to Voldemort, the one who must not be named, but must be named. And I think that as 
the series progresses and we feel, gosh, it's not long now, what, what is going to happen? There's a great deal of speculation. I'm not asking you to come out with any answers here, but there's a great deal of speculation as to how close this relationship is mm. between the darkest wizard of them all and our hero who saved the world. Well, a question I, I was asked a lot early on was, was Voldemort really Harry's father? And, of course, that's a Star Wars exactly. <laughs> question, Total really, isn't it? And, uh, no, he is not going to turn out to be Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It's, he's not... Uh, in a biological sense, related to him at all. No, that's a very good answer to have. I think that that one of the current front-running endings, I'm not sure you're aware of this, as far as the betting goes, is that Harry will finally defeat Voldemort at the expense of all his own powers, and he will end by going into the world as an ordinary muggle. (gasps) Which is an extraordinary idea. It's a good ending. It is is a good ending. You can borrow it if you like. (laughs) (laughs) And be sued for plagiarism by about 13 million children. (laughs) This is your problem, isn't it? You're not allowed to read anything written by anybody else, just on the off chance. Well... Let's think about the world that you've used um, in terms of its tradition, if you like, from little Cornish pixies to, you know, kelpies and, you know, mentions of particular types of plant like mandragora and so on. Mm. Uh, th- these are all real and a lot of children would, of course, imagine that you've made I've them up completely. horrible liberties yeah. with, um, with folklore and mythology. But I'm quite unashamed about that because British folklore and British mythology is a totally bastard mythology. You know, we've been invaded by people, we've appropriated their gods, we've taken their mythical creatures and we've soldered them all together to make what I would say is one of the richest folklores in the world because it's so varied. So I feel no compunction about borrowing from that freely but adding a few things Absolutely. to my own. But you're right, yes, yeah. children, I mean, they know, obviously they know that I didn't invent unicorns, but I've had to explain frequently that I didn't actually invent hippogriffs. Although a hippogriff is quite obscure. I, I went looking, because when I do use a creature that I know is, is a mythological yeah. entity, I like to find out as much as I can about it. I might not use it, but to make it as consistent as I feel is good for my plot... It's very little on hippogriffs. It's, it's I could, I could the really, map, isn't yeah. it? It's the here be hippogriffs. Yes, exactly, famous, uh, here be hippogriffs, yes. Yeah, like um, heffalumps in, in But they poo. don't seem to have been closely observed by medieval <laughs> naturalists, <laughs> so I could, I could And presumably they are, as the name would imply, and this is, brings us on to your other love, which is language itself at its most basic level Arcane. of words and uh, derivations, that hippogriff is, of course, a, a mixture of the horse, idea of a Welsh yeah. griffin and a, and a Greek for horse, hippo. That's right. Um, which is... A perfect example, as you say, of the bastardisation of our English folklore, like our language. Like it's our it's language, a the perfect mixture. Which is what uh, makes our language so rich. Exactly. And so nobbly and textured, and I love it too. And rest. even things like mundungus have a meaning. Mundungus, isn't that, isn't that a fantastic word? And it yes, means? Foul, stinking tobacco, which really suits him. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't it perfect? <laughs> now, do you, do you actually trawl through books of rare words or OED or, or things, or are they just um, things that you somehow, you've got a good memory for words? I don't really trawl books. They tend to be things I've collected or stumbled across in general reading. The exception was Gilderoy, Gilderoy Lockhart. The name Lockhart, although I know it's quite a well-known Scottish surname, I found on a war memorial. I was looking for quite a glamorous, um, dashing sort of surname, and Lockhart caught my eye on this war memorial, and that was it. I couldn't find a Christian name. And I was leafing through the um, Dictionary of Phrase and Fable one night. I was consciously looking for stuff, generally, that would be useful. And I saw Gilderoy, who was actually a highwayman and a very good-looking rogue. And Gilderoy Lockhart, it just sounded... It is a perfect, 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 impressive, and yet in the middle, quite hollow, of course. <laughs> Indeed, as we know he as was. As we know. So, to get down to the really important bit, which is me. Um, <laughs> yes, let's I, do I, you. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if the way I've read the books has altered your writing of them. 
I know that I've told you this before. There was a time when Jessica, my daughter, who's now 10, she absolutely loves the tapes. And there was a time when I was writing Goblet of Fire in particular where I would settle down to work in the evening and I could hear you reading from her bedroom, which really was a mind-warping experience to be writing one book while listening to you reading Chamber or, you know, Azkaban. It was bizarre and I felt that I couldn't escape Harry Potter. There was no escape. I could hear him and I could see him and I was writing about him. And Yes. It. Certainly I have to say, without just purely meaning to be flattering, that the shapes, the phrasing, the balance of sentences does make the, the books a delight to read in oh, that that's sense. Really it, 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 it really that's really good to um, hear. Sometimes writers have a marvellous sense of writing for the page and the words happen in that part of the brain that does it, but yeah. uh, but reading them out is, is terribly difficult. See, it, I love writing dialogue I really love writing dialogue and um, when I hear you reading it it gives me a whole new sense of pleasure because of course I never read my work aloud Mm. and yet hearing the dialogue spoken and I always Mm. hear you speak it before I hear actors speak it it's very pleasurable because I've always enjoyed writing it each time I do a new book there's a a CD that the engineer of the sound studio produces with all the characters and and, and it's uh, it's it's almost going to have to be a DVD next time I'm it's sorry like, it's so that I can remind myself of what you know what um, lavender sounded like or what uh, you know yeah. <laughs> what, what which particular character you know. Jessica wanted to know um, how you how you got um, Hermione's voice she thinks you're so brilliant at doing Hermione and and he, she doesn't understand how someone with such a deep voice can do a girl's voice so I was to ask you that <sighs> that's a that's an interesting question I always um, love the Scottish comedian Stanley Baxter. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. And I noticed from a very early age when I was 10 that when he did a woman, he usually deepened his voice. So unlike trying to do a sort of falsetto, he would go, hello, I'm Faith Douche, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> some strange character like that. And actually, for a lot of women, that works well. Not yes. for young girls, but for, for grown-up women, that works So it's softening well. the voice, really, It's more a sort than... of softening, exactly. Yes. I do. I do remember being there to see you record, and you, you, you said to me, "It's very hard to hiss something with no sibilant in it." <laughs> and someone had be, had hissed something like, "Don't do that." <laughs> That's another influence you've had on me. Every time I want someone to be hissing, which Snape does quite a lot. I have to check there's actually an S in it before, yes. I, before I make well, you do it. Well, you've done it with, with, with Snape and all that's around him. He's yes, got three right. S's himself and, uh, <laughs> and his house has got an S and exactly. it's got a slither and it's, you know, the whole, the whole hepetic, I believe, is the adjective, <laughs> but the whole snake-like uh, work is done. Now, um, a question I'm sure you're asked a lot, and that is um, for generations now, the ideal child hero is Harry Potter. But it didn't exist when you were a child. Who was the one you went hunting with, the one you, uh, well, you dreamt of being of with? And, loads know, and loads. loads. Um, I liked the heroine of The Little White Horse because she was quite plain, and I was plain, and, and most heroines are very beautiful. Yes. Um, yes. She was freckly and had reddish hair, and I identified with her a lot. Eloise was a bit like that. Yes, like I love Eloise. There were so many. I loved Ian Asbitt. She's still probably the, the children's writer with whom I most identify. Yes. Uh, she wasn't very sentimental. She wasn't, was um, she? And she loved a quirky detail. So, um, <laughs> yes, I, I thought she was very, very good. But I think female writers generally are less sentimental about childhood than male writers, in my opinion. I think you're absolutely right. It's a strange thing, children's fiction. There's the boy's adventure style. Yes. Which, you know, is, I suppose, the greatest example of, of, of them is Treasure Island, which yeah. is just one of the most immaculately written books which is, of any Which is genre. a wonderful book. And it which is I truly a great book, isn't yes. it? Yeah. And that really has almost no females in it at all. That's right. And what you've done is you've written a boy's adventure book, but, but it is but also girls. a girl's book, which is actually <laughs> extraordinary. 
And, and um, you know, one sh- perhaps shouldn't over-talk about the idea of gender. I remember a scene in a Martin Amis novel, I think it's uh, The Information, where the, <laughs> the characters have an enormous row talking about this very subject. You know, they, they actually leaves the dinner table because they're talking about, you know, women read certain types of book and men read mm-hmm. other types of book and that it will ever be thus. Yes. But do you find... I expect you get more letters from women, from girls, simply because girls are better at writing letters, he said. Um, I have a theory. It was roughly 50% each... And my theory is that parents were so thrilled their sons were reading that they would prod them into writing to me in the hope that they would keep this enthusiasm going. And and I've occasionally had extraordinary letters from boys, very, very, very touching letters from boys, arguably more touching, particularly when it's a letter that's written by someone who obviously doesn't find writing very easy, telling me that it's the first book they've ever read and they really like it. That's a wonderful compliment um, and an yes, extraordinary thought. Um, and it must make you slightly go all pink and... Um, it does um, make me go pink and wibbly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what good is a book, said Alice, without pictures and conversations in <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, which is always a book I think grown-ups actually like more than children do. I think so too. Um, but it's a, it's a splendid comment and a very sophisticated one, which is why adults like uh, Alice so much. Uh, I wondered if simply the expense of the first edition of your first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, whether the issue of illustration had come up and whether it was just, well, this is the biggest children's novel we've ever published in terms of size, yes. uh, length. Yes. Uh, we're not going to add no. to our expense by, by getting Quentin Blake or no, whoever. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. That was precisely the argument. They also felt that illustrations might aim it a little bit at a younger audience yes. than they were aiming for. I think it turned out to be quite right. And they were right. Yeah. The American edition, which is a very beautifully produced book, I must say, they have very small line drawings at the beginning of every chapter, which I like. Mm, it's yeah. just a suggestion of what's yes. to come, but it's not full-blown, full-page, exactly, colour plates. Although yeah. I used to love a colour plate. I used to mm. flick through to find them oh, before absolutely. I read the book. Absolutely. And there was a smell to them because <laughs> yeah, the paper was, was shiny and different. Yeah, there was a very distinctive smell. And sometimes they were frightening. You yes. knew the one was coming that you didn't quite like for some reason. Yeah. You can still remember them all. It's weird, isn't it? Well, uh, on the subject of America, you're published there by Scholastic, I Scholastic, believe, is it? Um, yeah. I remember you telling me about your first signing queue in America. And, uh, oh, that was serious. You know, we'd expect a few boys to, to come with a scar pencilled clumsily on their foreheads, but uh, you had... You there had was, a woman in guilt. Yes, Explain right. About her. I had a woman who dressed up as the fat lady, complete with frame, hung around her neck. That was extraordinary, and that was the closest I will ever get to being a pop star. <laughs> I walked through this door at the back of the store, and there were screams, literally screams, and flashbulbs going off, and I didn't know where I was. I was completely yeah. disorientated. I think as a defensive mechanism... When those events are over, I kind of shut down, and I think I have to shut down and think that that was a very odd anomaly. <laughs> and then I have to return to my office and just convince myself that this is just my world. Yeah. I find this a really difficult question to answer myself when I wrote the character, so I don't see why you should find it any easier, really, but I'm going to ask. Um, is there any character with whom you identify particularly? The easy wisdom and slightly kind of twinkling uh, um, of quality of Dumbledore. I- I've always had this... Um, Love of great teachers. Uh, the first uh, fictional character I really rounded one I created was for a radio program. Was, was was an old 
Cambridge Don, Don, Don Confucius. Confucius yeah. <laughs> Do you remember an, an Archbishop of Canterbury called Ramsay, no, the last of the really sort of great and monumental primates of the Church of England, by which I don't mean the nape, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember seeing him being interviewed by a Malcolm Mugridge-type person who said, no, you're, you're a Canterbury, very wise man. He said, am I, am I, am I wise, am I, I wonder, am I wise, am I? And, uh, <laughs> and the interviewer said, well, Your Grace, perhaps you could explain what you think wisdom is. Wisdom, wisdom, mm. Mm, wisdom. I think it's the ability to cope. He said, oh, is which is that's... a marvellous definition. You know, it it is. I'm so right. I mean, it comes as you know. It's the wisdom, is is the kingdom of wit. It is wit, witdom, wit knowing the German of knowing Wissenschaft and so on. And in wit is a, so you is are a marvellous. Dumbledore. Look, <laughs> natural <laughs> teacher. It's that sort of <laughs> and that sense of being able to cope with things. Yes. And it's not how much you know. No. Yeah, and you sense Something that with that, that rather marvellous, occasionally rather tired, worn quality that Dumbledore has mm-hmm. because he's experienced so much and he can cope, but he would almost rather not be able to. That's, <laughs> no. a, that's exactly right. Dumbledore does express the regret yeah. that he has always had to be the one who knew and who had the burden of knowing. And um, he would rather not know. But of all, I mean, of course, Harry Potter is the one, because he's the point of consciousness of the book. Harry, Harry is, the, is, is the one who is under, undergoes all the tests, the ordeals by yes. fire and all, all kinds of other things. And, and as with any hero, you, you measure yourself against him. And there are times when I think, I would just run away or mm. I wouldn't care, I'd wave my wand even though I'm not supposed to. You know? My favourite comment about Harry uh, at the time of the first book was it was a schoolboy who was interviewed on television so, and, and asked why he liked Harry, the character, so much. And he said... He doesn't seem to know what's going on a lot of the time, and nor do I. (laughs) That's so good. I suppose there are times when you, you know, uh, and I I think I mentioned this to you when when I first read The Order of the Phoenix was, you have to be so cruel to him. I mean, Well, Phoenix, I I would say in in, in (laughs) self-defence, Harry had to, because of what I'm trying to say about Harry as a hero, because he's a very human hero, and this is obviously, there's a contrast between him as a very human hero and Voldemort, who has deliberately dehumanised himself. And Harry, therefore, did have to reach a point where he did almost break down and say he didn't want to play anymore, he didn't want to be the hero anymore, and he'd lost too much. And he, and he didn't want to lose anything else. And so that phoenix was the point at which I decided he would have his breakdown. Right. And now he will rise from the ashes strengthened. It is such a primary energy, particularly with children, and we lose it, I suppose, at our peril. The outrage at injustice, mm. which is one of the primary um, sort of motor forces in, in all the books, isn't it? I think. The feeling of a 12-year-old boy that they've been unfairly accused, the, the burning sense of outrage. You're right, we shouldn't lose that, yeah. but we do often. Yeah. Adults do. yeah. No, that's quite right. I think the thing that I find most extraordinary is, I don't know how many characters I have in play now, how do you find voices for them? It's not a simple thing to answer. I mean, so often they're there, and I hope that, generally speaking, I've, if not given exactly the voice you imagine, that it's somewhere in that area. I mean, there are characters like Tonks, which for some reason I just instinctively felt she had that... Slightly sort of Burnley, um, you know, Jane Horrocks <laughs> sort of accent. And it just seemed to fit her exactly. And uh, I it think, does, yeah. yeah, I think Celia, the producer, had the same idea in her head that mm-hmm. it should be that. And, and yet you did, you, there's no kind of um, put wood in thole and, no. um, you know, bar tat kind mm-hmm. of northern writing in it. It's just something that's there. And I, I'm sure it's just as unconscious with you sometimes that you, you're writing a, a smallish character that use a turn of phrase that makes me think, oh, that sounds like a cockney or that's 
So that's an older character, or that's a younger character. Because you knew that Hagrid was West Country. Yes. And yeah. that was the only thing I wanted to warn you before you started yeah. reading, and my plane was delayed. That right. was the first time we ever met. And I got there, and, and one of the first things you said to me was, I've done Hagrid as a kind of Somerset, and yeah. I was, oh, thank goodness for that, because I thought, if you make him Glaswegian, <laughs> you know, I would have had to, that was the only character I felt protective about, yes. accent-wise. Yeah. What I really enjoy about your reading is the accents aren't intrusive. I don't feel as though you're in any sense giving a sort of virtuoso performance no. of these are as many accents as I can do or, or different voices. You don't form a big barrier between the listener and the story, I feel. Do you, do you know what I know do exactly, you know what I mean? and that is precisely what, uh, one, you know, what I aim for, is not to get in the way of it, is that yes. for people not to hear the voice after a while. You know mm-hmm. how when you're reading, sometimes you lose it and you find you're having to go back and yes. uh, because yeah. you're too aware of the letters and the words. And then you can read a whole chapter and not be aware of having turned over a page. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, the, the, the print and the, the paper have not been there. That's right. and, and it should be the same with my voice when they're listening, you know, yeah. the, the, the first paragraph or so. But then immediately their mind is in the world of the Dursleys and of Hogwarts and, uh, and, and the night bus and, and everything else. And, yeah. and they, they don't notice me doing it. And Celia, the producer, and, and Helen are very good at making sure that I don't over-project a voice or, maybe, maybe, you know, overdo something. And the only other problem is the pacing, you know. I think it's yeah. so important to refresh a yes, page, yes. you know, because otherwise you, you can get, just get a bit lulled. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, But you mustn't overdo that either. So I, d- I, I don't feel I should almost push you that much further, but are there any scenes that you have particularly or that you can remember enjoying reading? Well, the, um, you know, the whole creepy stuff at the climax of Order of the Phoenix, mm. you know, in the, in the bowels of the Ministry of Magic and so on. I, I, I loved the fact that it was so frightening and scary and, and dramatic. And I loved, you know, building up the tension and so on. And there's strange glass orbs and what were they going to mean and then getting stuck behind doors. There are a few children who have told me that they took it in much better when you read it to them than when they read it on the page. And I think that's because, with Phoenix, because people had had to wait three years for it, they raced through they the book. They read too fast and they leapt ahead and they really lost the Really raced it, exactly. Uh, I, and then yeah. I've, I've had readers say to me, I've read it again and there's a lot more than I thought. Was that? <laughs> well, that's because I think you read it in about an afternoon, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> so listening to you, I think, has really, yes, given them a sense of where they are. Is it really true that you've got it all planned out? I mean, yes, it, it is really, really true. Um, astonishing. Yes, I do know what's going to happen in the end. And occasionally I, I get cold shivers when someone guesses yes. at something that's very close. And, I, and then I panic and I think, oh, it's very obvious. And then someone says something that's so off the wall, I think, no, it's clearly not that obvious. Oh, good. <laughs> I always leave myself latitude to go on a little stroll off the path. But the path yes. is, is what I'm yeah. essentially following. So much that happens in six relates to what happens in seven. Yes. And you really sort of skid off the end of six straight into seven. Really? You know, it's yeah. not... It's yeah. not a, it, it's not the discrete adventure that the others have all been, even though right. you've had the underlying theme of Harry versus Voldemort. In each case, as you, you know better than anyone, <laughs> there has been an adventure that has resolved itself. Yes, exactly. Whereas in six, although there is, a, there is an ending that could be seen as definitive in one sense, you, you very strongly feel the plot is not over this time and it, and it will continue. So. Yeah, it's an odd feeling. I've, I've, for the first time, I'm very, very aware that I'm, I'm finishing. The the the, the tape is the in sight. The end is in sight. Yes, it's extraordinary. Yes. Um, you'll always write because it's an, a need you have. Do you do you imagine you will write for children next time you write something um, new? There is, will will there you write a... for the children who were children that are now <laughs> yes. adults who were your first generation? <laughs> um, I don't know. You Truthfully, don't. I don't know. I am. There is another children's book that's sort of mouldering in a cupboard that I quite like, which is for slightly younger children, I would say. 
but there are other things I'd like to write too. But I think I'll need to find a good pseudonym and do it all secretly because yes. I'm, I'm very frightened. You can imagine. Um, oh, absolutely. Of, of the unbearable hype that would yeah. attend a post-Harry Potter book. And I'm yeah. not sure I, I, I look forward to that at all. Well, with that tantalising glimpse into the future for Joe and a lingering question as to whether we will recognise her post-Potter work, we parted and I set off on 600 more pages of Harry. I can't wait for book seven. Like many a fan, I want to know what happens in the end. But I don't really want the end to come. <laughs>